Welcome to From the Bench with Dench. I'm your studio host, Denny Dench Rittenhouse. Welcome to another edition of From the Bench with Dench. Your studio host, Denny Dench Rittenhouse here. And uh, we've got part two of uh, our record uh, collector, collecting memories, Jim Ronit, or Ronet, as he taught me a couple weeks ago. Hope you enjoyed our first episode with Jim. Uh, got some tremendous feedback, and I'm proud to say it was our most listened to from the bench with Dench uh, episode to date, even going back to my private podcast of a, a year ago. So so thanks a lot to Jim for, for bringing some additional audience and, and piquing the interest of our listeners. Um, uh, we got some terrific feedback on the show. And uh, hope to, to get the same result here in uh, episode two. Before we do that, a couple house cleaning uh, tips. Um, as always, you can find the podcast on your, your favorite streaming service um, these days. And you can get back episodes out there at, at Spotify and Amazon and uh, Apple Podcast and uh, Google uh, Podcasts and, and a few of the other uh, niche podcasts if you listen to uh, Deezer and some of the others. So so get uh, this episode and uh, back episodes at your faming, uh, favorite streaming service from the bench with Dench. Um, also check my Facebook page and uh, uh, you can find the link there as well. Uh, hope you enjoyed our last episode of the NCAA uh, bracket picking and uh, my um, adventure into proving how much I, I stink at that. And uh, after watching the past four days of basketball, I have validated my assertion of just how bad I am in spite of the fact I broadcast hundreds of basketball games over the year, have attended thousands of basketball games over the years, played basketball for many years, and uh, I still can't pick a winner in the NCAA tournament. It's a lifelong uh, mission of mine to win a bracket some year. It won't be this year. Uh, So I hope you enjoyed that broadcast. And uh, podcast, and, and if you get a chance, you might listen and, and get a few laughs out of it as well. As uh, we all pretty much uh, stunk up the room with our our picks. Uh, one or two of us might come out on in decent shape. I don't know about any winners on on that bracket. But enough about uh, uh, bragging about how bad I am at, at basketball picks. Let's get back to collecting memories. And Jim, right off the bat. Um, um, and I'm probably guilty of this myself in saying you're a record collector, but but you've got a little different insight into that as to what that means, right? It's it's more than just a stack of vinyl. Oh yes, it is. Uh, people don't realize how widespread record record collecting can be. <clears throat> First of all, there's basically three formats of vinyl that people collect. Of course, we're all familiar with the 12 inch, 33 and a third LP which is probably at this time period the most collectible vinyl. And then you have the, uh, the old 78s, which were popular from about 1910 up until the late 50s till they faded them out. And that was basically the only format you could really get the music on was the 78 RPM records. And then about 1950, when the 45s came in, they basically phased out the 78s and 45s took over there. So you have collectors who deal in each of those formats. Of course, then you break down into the different genres of music, what people might collect. You know, jazz, rockabilly, country, polka music, instrumental music, uh, comedy music, soundtracks, so on and so on. Uh, A lot of people like to uh, basically stay with with one subject or one artist that they might like to collect one certain artist. But uh, it, it takes in a wide scope when you mention somebody that collects records. It, it can mean a lot. Yeah, I imagine you, you run into people um, that collect, like, the major artists and focus on Elvis or the Beatles. Um, um, I, I've come across that myself. Yeah. Um, and, and going different places and seeing these, uh, uh, especially at, like, a, uh, um, um, a county market or, or something like Belleville had the last yeah. couple of weeks. You might see an artist that has nothing... Our collector has nothing but Elvis memorabilia. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of record collectors that focus on one particular artist. And in doing that, they also uh, collect the vinyl that other people recorded of their songs. Like the, some people recorded a lot of the hits that Elvis did, so they like to record uh, collect that type of music. Uh, and they branch out with anything that Elvis's name shows up on. Uh, if his picture's on a record, 
sleeve or a cover of an album, that's always very, makes it more desirable. Do you, you have any artist that fits that way that um, um, you, you're like, if I see anything, I think you mentioned it last time, by so-and-so, I'm, I'm going to snatch it. Well, basically, when I started collecting, uh, I, I started collecting the 45s that you heard on the radio, the big hits, but then I was always an Elvis fan, so I concentrated on Elvis quite a bit back in the 70s and early 80s when I was collecting. Uh, anything I saw by him, I always usually picked up. And I, I've built up a pretty good Elvis collection over the years. And like I have all of his son recordings that he did back in the early 50s, I have it on both formats. They came out at that time on 45 and 78. And the reason for that was it was about the time they were phasing out 78s in the mid-50s. But there was still a lot of jukeboxes that were distributed around the country. And a lot of people didn't have the new record players to play the 45s or the albums. So 78s were still being made up until about 1958. And they kind of ceased production at that time. Interesting. Uh, uh, and then do you, do you do the side stuff on Elvis as well? Uh, concert event posters or, or anything like that that, that that has Elvis on it? Or, or you kind of just focus on the music itself? Oh, no. I, I collect uh, pictures, autographs. I got a couple of autographs of Elvis and uh, menus from the Las Vegas shows. We went out and saw Elvis three or four times and when he was in Vegas. And I always brought home the menus. That was kind of collectible. And then back in the 50s... Did they did they customize the menus for a specific Elvis show? Oh, sure they did, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, every time he appeared at one of the hotels, they had a menu made up for that show. He might be there three or four weeks, it'll be the same menu for three or four weeks. But then the next time he's back, it'll be a different menu with his picture on the cover and so on and so and, uh, as I was did you have to buy it, or did you accidentally walk out with it? Oh, no, they, they were distributed on, on a table there waiting for you. If <laughs> okay, you went to so a dinner show, they had menus there waiting for you, and that's what you ordered your dinner from, and then you could keep the menu that's when it. you left then. Yeah. And I, it's kind of, I remember back in, like, 72 was the first time we saw him in Las Vegas. And of course, we kept our menu, but I was walking out of the show. There's menus laying on all the tables as we're walking out. People didn't take them with them, and I'm thinking... Now, why did I pick all those up? Because they became quite collectible. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. No kidding. How'd you like them? Oh, it, it, the first three shows we saw were just un, unbelievable. Uh, I don't know if I told the story when we first saw him in, in Vegas. The company I worked for gave me a, a special tip who to call when I got out to Las Vegas to get tickets. Because all Elvis shows were sold out. So we were given a name to call at the Sands Hotel. And when they answered the phone, I said, I was supposed to ask to talk to Dr. Nick. That was a code. And they said, oh, what, what show do you want to see? And I said, is it possible to see Elvis? And they said, well, yeah, sure. You want a supper show or a late show? So we took a supper show. And when we got to the seating part, uh, we had VIP seating because of what we went through and we got a table up next to the stage and this is the first time we saw Elvis and when the lights went down and the music came up and Elvis walked out it was really a thrill but what was happening this was a dinner show and everybody was all dressed up and eating their meal but they started coming towards the stage these people all stood up out of their tables and they started coming to the stage and they were pushing against us so my wife and I and a couple that we were with actually got up on top of the table to get out of their way and Elvis walked out on our table. <laughs> and he shook my hand and my friend sat and he kissed our wives. And he, and he said, isn't this crowd crazy? And I, I was stunned. I don't think I washed my hands since then. <laughs> but that's one great story I get to tell about Elvis. I yeah, actually got a, to shake his amazing. Hand. That's amazing. Now, it was who? Dr. Nick? Dr. Nick Vitale. It had to do with kind of the uh, Italian mob in St. Louis. I worked for a printing company who was owned by the Vitales and another group. And anytime you wanted anything, they said, you're in Vegas, you call and ask for Dr. Nick. You never got to talk to Dr. Nick, but that was the code to the lady who answered the phone. That's a great story. Then. And who gave you the, uh, who, who was your contact? Out of curiosity? Well, it's the printing company I work for. It oh, was, the, was oh. the boss there. I happened to mention 
I was up by his office and I mentioned we're going to go out and see Elvis. He says, oh, here, let me give you a number to call and get you tickets. You know, I thought, okay, we'll see that. And it worked. <laughs> <laughs> that is an incredible story. Uh, thanks, <laughs> thanks for sharing that. that that's neat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, and, and you knew going to see him a second time, there's no way that was going to be topped, but oh, yeah. but but you you enjoyed it the first three times. Oh, was that what you saw him three times? Three times out in Vegas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, On but, the same trip? No. Okay. Well, three different. We kind of made our vacation then to try to get out to Vegas uh, back then and, and see Elvis again. Uh-huh. So. so so what it, it inspired the first trip was that after the '71 Aloha Special. Uh, on TV? Yes, it was funny. We, we went down to Memphis, my wife and I, and we walked up to the gate, and uh, I think it was Uncle Fester was working at the gate, Elvis's uncle. And we asked about Elvis, and he said, well, Elvis is out in Las Vegas. He said, you ought to try to go out and see his show there. This, this was 1971. I think he just started in Las Vegas. So my wife and I looked at each other and said, oh, my goodness. So we cut our vacation short that time, went back home, <laughs> tried to save some money up, and then I think that was in June, and in August we flew out and saw Elvis. <laughs> Neat stuff. Yeah, actually getting down to Graceland when he lived there. Yeah, he was yeah. still living there. The yeah, we, we, we've been there, but uh, obviously long after yeah. he had passed, a, a, a big tourist attraction there in Memphis. So, so neat stuff. Um, yeah, but times two and three were were, were just as uh, enthralling. Oh, it was it was really exciting. The crowds, it's so much fun. We never left. The first time was called the International Hotel. Then it became the Flamingo Hilton. But we never left the hotel because it was just constantly all the feelings about Elvis. And the whole place is decorated with Elvis and uh, everybody you talk to is Elvis fanatics. And it was just fun to be there. And then the shows were always good. Of course, the next couple of shows, we never got close to the stage, even though we saved extra money up the tip, but it didn't work. We got about halfway down from that on because the prices kept going up and up and up. So, But we got lucky that first time. Yeah, that's an incredible story. It's probably why Ruth has been letting you collect ever since then. She's waiting for that type of event to happen again for you, right? Yeah. yeah. How cool, how cool. Um, yeah, that's a... That tops any concert experience I've had, um, and I've, I've been to hundreds of concerts over the years. But uh, that that's neat stuff. Thank, uh, thanks. Um, so the the three Elvis times. Uh, so so were you guys emotionally moved when he passed uh, a few years later? Um, I don't typically myself get too so moved or attached to a star that when they pass, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bummed for a day yeah. or two, but. Um, you know, being being a collector like that, do you, do, does it have a, a, a similar impact uh, to say like a pet or something passing away? Or? <laughs> well, yeah, it was more, I guess, to call it disappointment, a kind of a shock. I mean, just, you just can't believe all of a sudden he's gone. And, uh, I, you know, I didn't go into mourning or anything, but, but I, yeah. I, I, I kind of... But with Elvis, there were, you know, I wouldn't dismiss that because there were probably thousands of people that did. Oh, sure. Uh, you oh. know, that do get that kind of impact and emotional uh, charge from, from somebody like that. So so having that experience, I was just a little curious. And, yeah. And, and, and so, uh, and then obviously the collectibles around Elvis has to just take off. Um, after he passes in, in what, 77 was it? Yes, it was. Uh, that, he, that he passed. I would think the collectible industry takes on a whole new level when something like that happens. Well, yeah, uh, the stuff prior to him passing away would really shut up in value. Of course, what happened then when he did pass away, the, the market was flooded with all of this after-death memorabilia stuff that they put out and produced statues and whiskey decanters and, and dinner plates and all that hit the markets and to me that that's just nothing that just had no real value right. as a collector goes a lot of his fans love that stuff which is all right yeah that's fine a lot of his true fans bought that they weren't really record collectors they were just elvis fans yeah and they bought that type of stuff yeah i see Anybody else along that line that, that you focused on as far as um, uh, collections go? I think you you mentioned a couple others to me that 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 pique your uh, curiosity more than 
Well, I have a, a favorite type of music, like once again, record collectors all have different genres they like. And the late 50s, well, starting with Elvis, it's called rockabilly music. And what it was is when these young country artists started uh, trying to attract the teenage people, uh, they had a lot of country influence and they started singing songs more, more related to the teenagers because about that time, teenagers were, were, were getting more exposure with, with portable radios, with American Bandstand, and, and that was the way that they make money. The country artists weren't making a lot of money, but they saw these teen, teenagers and rock and rollers, so a lot of them started switching their country music to more of a rock and roll. And Elvis's first couple records on Sun are, are really, to me, one of his best, best music, which is considered rockabilly. And once again, it's usually a vocalist and maybe a couple guitars and sometimes a drum. And that's all it's made up of in the band. It was people like Eddie Cochran, Gene Vincent, Buddy Holly. They all had the same style of music, uh, a simple combo that they played with. And that type of music I really enjoy. So I usually chase what we call rockabilly music. And there's a lot of unknown artists that never made it. Uh, and, and their records become very, very collectible. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've got a little little exercise we're going to walk through here in a little while. And I think you'll uh, maybe have a little appreciation for, for the list I put together um, based off what you just said there from the, the rockabilly influence. Um, so... So as far as uh, um, um, artists go, um, uh, you focused on Elvis. Um, uh, now, me growing up a generation later, uh, the question was always Elvis or Beatles? Beatles or Elvis? Mm -hmm. you, you can't like both. It's one or the <laughs> other. Did you take a liking to the British invasion uh, in the 60s and in particular the Beatles? Uh, I, I really enjoyed the early Beatles in, but to me, when they first started out, they were doing strictly rock and roll, and they were even covering some of the older songs, and plus the songs that they wrote. Uh, I always try to tell people, first of all, Elvis was strictly an entertainer. He was a, an icon. He, he walked out on stage and sang and got everybody excited. The Beatles were musicians. Uh, they could write their music. They could play their instruments. Uh, they, they were more talented, I would say, music-wise, and what Elvis was, because Elvis was strictly an entertainer. And so there's quite a bit of difference when you try to compare the two. Uh, it's, I don't think it would ever happen again, what Elvis did. People are just not knocked out like they used to be. Because you have to go back to the time period, if, if you had any idea what the 50s were like. It was very subdued. Everything was very watched over. You didn't. You had to be careful what you said, what you did on television, what you did in the movies. So when Elvis bust on the scene, this was total chaos to everybody. Nobody knew what this guy was doing. Oh my! Look at him shake those hips. Oh boy. yeah, yeah. He was banned from a lot of radio stations. And, yeah. Uh, he was banned from doing performances in some towns because they didn't like his gestures. And and now today. You try to compare stuff that happens today, even going back to like the group Kiss or or some of these other wild looking groups that come. It, it's just not the same. You had to be there to understand what Elvis was in the fifties and what the fifties were at that time period. Yeah, that's uh, I I think you framed that very nicely. And uh, he was an entertainer versus versus uh, the Beatles being musicians as they were and, uh, and such. Which is also another reason Elvis worked so well in Vegas. Um, you know, he he owned the city for for a good number of years there, um, in the seventies, and it was because uh, he was such an entertainer um, and, and and an iconic figure, uh, nonetheless. So so you appreciated the early Beatles, and then they they got a little too progressive for you by by the end of the decade. And, uh, That's a good way to put it. Yeah, there. Uh, well, of course, you you have to keep creating things, and, and they had different directions, and they were successful at it. I mean, I can't put them down for anything. I mean, they're very talented. They were very good people, very good musicians. Uh, it just, you know, it's, once again, it's like you mentioned about generation. Well, that's a whole new generation away from me after I grew up the late 50s and the early 60s or the teen idol era in the early 60s before the British invasion. And then when the British invasion came, that was a whole new set of 
music and style and everything. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, uh, so, so you really piqued my interest in um, uh, the focus on uh, collecting the Billboard uh, 100 and stuff, and and um, it's a, a, a Going off topic slightly here, but I'll, I'll circle back to get us on topic. Is I'm a, I'm a, I don't know. I, I guess morbid curiosity reader of the obituaries, okay. and so so I follow the obituaries. Just it, I don't know why. Um, I, I look at the locals. It used to be it started out in. I'll, I'll keep an eye on it for Dad because he's always asking me if. Um, uh, I knew if he knew anybody who's passed away lately because he wasn't reading papers or, or whatever. And so, so I was just like, got in the habit of looking at it and I always check the celebrity section. And so to get back on topic, um, and, in the past month or two, um, I, I see these, uh, two female artists that they were listed as past passed away. And I had never heard of either one. Now I may have heard of Joe Stafford. Um, but thinking of her as a, a TV personality, not not a, a singer who, you know, I'd since learned was uh, uh, married to the conductor um, um, Weston, the last yeah, name. I can't Paul Weston. Paul Weston, Paul yeah. Weston. Paul Weston. And uh, uh, she had a string of success in, musically in the 40s mm-hmm. and early 50s. And I'm reading the, the article and it says she had a number one hit in 1952 with something. And then like a week later, um, another gal, Joni James, I think her name was. Yes. Yeah, Joni James passes away. And uh, uh, she is also listed as having a number one hit. So my question to you is, do you have both them in your collection? Oh, yes, I sure do. Uh, now, especially with Joni James, who was popular in her early 50s, and most of her recordings are available on 45s, uh, and Joe Stafford, I have some of her albums, but most of her early recordings were only on 78s because she was with the big band era during the 40s and into the early 50s. And some of her songs are on 45 and made the Billboard Top 100, which I do have. And, uh, they were known as uh, the lead singers for orchestras. There was them, and of course, you had Patti Page and Doris Day. Or Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, they were all the orchestra vocalists that traveled around with some of these big orchestras. And then they had success as solo singers when they made their records. Uh, but once again, we're talking about generations. That's a generation before me. Yeah, yeah. And they actually, not to be morbid, they actually lived too long and they kind of outlived their collectability because they were around for so long. And when they do finally pass, it's expected. You know, that, that's, that's funny you mentioned that because, <clears throat> excuse me, the, I, was, I was blown away because I love that era. I, I listen a lot to the music and I'm, I'm playing a little Johnny James here in the background. Um, but but I was, I was uh, taken back by the lack of coverage and even acknowledgement when Doris Day passed away. Um, uh, not too long ago, uh, two years ago maybe. Uh, how yeah, no no salute in the Oscars, and here's a gal that dominated as a female for for three decades. Was the top female artist in some genre or another, whether it's the movies, TV, um, music. Um, and she she was on top of the world, but she outlived herself, <laughs> and and you know she died in her in her nineties, which I'm sure from her perspective is a great thing, uh, but it it, it uh, um, the way you frame that uh, uh, certainly applied to to Doris Day as well as um, uh, these other two gals we're talking about from that era. Uh, Doris Day in her, in her later years kind of became a recluse and stayed by herself, and she was a like several of those people were up, was into helping the animals and yeah. humane societies. That was kind of what they dedicated to them. And so when, like you said, she was into her 90s when she passed away, and you, this is my opinion, you might even blame it on the people in her 40s and 50s who put on these promotions about people, about old stars and that. They just didn't pick up on her. I don't think like they should have. I agree. She should have been more recognized, but she uh, won so many awards during her life, and then she kind of faded away. And then the younger people who were taking over, 
the awards and all that kind of had her out of their mind too. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great way to put that, uh, and that's uh, exactly what happened to Joe Stafford and Joni James from from my perspective was. Mm-hmm. Was a um, hadn't hadn't heard of him. I'm sure there's a, a lot more artists in that that time frame that uh, that fit that bill. Um, I, I think I know a lot of them, but but boy, there's there's just so much talent out there that uh, um, I I don't recognize and stuff. So when I see something like that come along, I, I really appreciate uh, looking into their history and stuff. Uh-huh. And so so uh, once again, a tip of the hat for having those two. Uh, from my perspective, in your collection, like you do, and, uh, um, a couple others, and so I'll just go down this lane here. Um, play along with me, if you will. So, some some artists that that died young, and I, I'm interested in your your uh, perspective. Uh, did they leave a lot of? Uh, um, were we robbed of a uh, future releases from them or had they run their table pretty well? And, um, um, we, you know, it, it's the, the timing didn't really impact the, the collectible, uh, industry, if you will. So, um, by their, their leaving when they did, um, and first two I'll compare. Now, um, you mentioned these two, both of them in your rockability little segment here. Okay. So, so I'm proud of myself for, for picking these two out. Um, uh, and we've talked about offline Buddy Holly before, but uh, I also got Eddie Cochran on here. Uh, both of them died very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buddy Holly, 22. I think Eddie Cochran was 20, maybe? Maybe uh, 20, 21. Yeah, he was, yeah he, he was pretty young. And for those who don't know, Summertime Blues would be his, his big hit, yes. his mega hit. But uh, he, he worked with a lot of people. I didn't, I didn't know that with him. Yeah. Um, of those two, who left more music? Um, who had more potential coming forward, in your opinion, between those two? Well, uh, there's a little bit of difference. Buddy Holly had been around a while. Buddy Holly had wrote a lot of his songs, and, and he produced his earliest stuff. But towards the last year, when he was on that fateful tour that he was on, he had started changing his style a little bit. He had started getting away from rock and roll, rockabilly music. It was getting into a little bit of what people say is pop music. Because some of his last recordings, he was using strings in his recording, which is unheard of for a rockabilly singer. Right. But he was start, when he was getting a little mature, he was changing his style a little bit. I, I think his career might not have carried on as great as it was before if, if he hadn't passed away then. Now, Eddie Cochran's a little bit different because he was killed in a tragic car wreck in England at the top of his career. Uh, and he was a songwriter and a good performer, a good guitar player. He played on a lot of other people's recordings with his guitar. Uh, but he, but once again, that style of music, that was, I think was 1960 when he passed away, that was yeah. probably about the end of the rockabilly era when you were moving into more of the teen idol people like Bobby V, Bobby Rydell, Bobby Darren, all, all those type of people were starting to take over the music scene at that time. So I don't know how much longer Eddie Cochran could have carried on uh, if he did not pass away. Yeah, yeah, uh, in- interesting take. I, I'll have to give Buddy Holly another listen on, on that that last album and see, see if I yeah. can pick up on, on what you're alluding to there. Um, uh, my next two I have um, are, were considerably older, um, but, but uh, uh, and iconic names. Um, uh, as well. Um, one you probably don't think of, I, at least I never really thought of as a Billboard top artist, but she had quite a few in the 40s, and, and Judy Garland. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Judy Garland being being one, and the, the comparison I have to her is Nat King Cole, who had a, obviously a huge success in the 50s and, and into the early 60s, but I imagine you got both those in your collection. Oh, sure, yes. And... and did even any either one of those have a chance for a second or in Judy Garland's case, maybe even a third career? Um, both were in their mid forties when they passed. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Judy Garland is a, it's kind of a sad story. She well, she was definitely uh, more of a stage uh, movie artist, and then she could sing. She sang a lot of musicals, uh, but she had a lot of problems in her life with alcohol and different things like that. 
she was actually, people say, I'm not an expert on her really, but she was burning herself out towards the end. And I don't know if she could have came out of that and carried on or not. But she made such an impression before that when she was younger, going back to all of her early movies and the, the singing that she did in the movies. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you don't really look at her as a a, a top-selling vocalist, but you look at her as a show tune vocalist. More than Elvis entertainer kind yeah, of. Yeah, she was definitely an entertainer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and most of her music it shows up on soundtracks, right? From the from the plays and from the movies, and that's where her music is at. And Nat King Cole um, just ran his course. You think musically? Uh, he was getting a little political by the end of his his yeah. life there in, in, in the 60s. But. He, he, to me, he was very talented, a great singer, uh, a, a good composer and, and a songwriter himself. Uh, but once again, I, I, I hate to beat the subject up, but he was just so mistreated because of being black. Uh, he had a, a television show that only lasted six months because they could not find sponsorship for it. Nobody wanted to sponsor a black singer on television, and it was really sad. Yeah, because yeah. he, he he was such a gentleman and such a such a voice, such a, a really great voice. Yeah, uh, and, and, and politically, I mean, he he fought for the right causes. He he didn't really lean as we look at things today, left and right. And, yeah. Uh, he sang at a, a, a Republican's inauguration. He sang at a Democrat's inauguration. Uh, so, so it's like, hey, I, I'm a I'm a a musician and an entertainer. Um, um, yeah, sure, I'll play if you want. So, so uh, yeah, interesting take there. All right, now I got a couple guys here that um, I think fit the genres you like. I know. I know uh, Frankie Lyman from the Teenagers. You're a big fan of doo wop, so oh, yeah. so a big fan of uh of. Uh, uh, Frank and Lyman's and uh, White and Fools Fall in Love probably being their biggest hit. Sure. Um, he he kind of uh, uh, self-inflicted uh, his demise in the, in the, the mid-60s. Did they have anything left talent-wise at that point? Or had... had... Yeah, uh, de- definitely he did. He went solo after his big sits with the teenagers, Frank and Lyman and the teenagers. He had some success as a solo artist. And he was getting into a, a little bit more popular music other than rock and roll, and he, and he did a good job at it. So, uh, so well, yeah, he certainly had the potential then, yeah. it, it being only 25, I think yeah. it was. So he was extremely young when he he hit success, and he, uh, and, dang near 10 years earlier than that. And talk about an entertainer. I mean, if you could ever see the old film strips of him on stage, the way he could dance and sing, yeah. uh, he was very good. He had a lot of talent. But once again, he was at the wrong era. Yeah. Being... Well, when you when you read in uh, um, the legacy that somebody like he has, um, and you see artists that were influenced, um, you you tip your hat to a guy like Frankie Lyman when you see the names Bruce Springsteen or Billy Joel uh-huh. uh, citing him as major influences on their desire to get into music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's a, a pretty impressive. How about Otis Redding? Is that a um, an artist you? Otis is a tremendous R and B singer, uh, soul singer. He was one of the best. Had such an unusual voice, and he could get across his songs. And he and he died tragically. I think his career would probably went on several years after he passed away because he was basically on top of his career when it happened and uh, he made some great music. Yeah, I didn't realize he was only 26 when, when I was doing this research and, and, uh-huh. and such. And so, um, yeah, yeah. He, uh, and for those uh, sitting on the dock of the bay, for example, being uh, probably his, his major tune on the right. He had quite a few. <clears throat> um, so, so my next two, as we stroll down this comparison lane here, um, you mentioned the, the rockabilly. Um, did any get bigger than Hank Williams? <laughs> Were there any bigger than, than Hank Williams? Do you consider him rockabilly? I, I, I think he probably fits that class for some of his music. Yeah, he. Yeah. Uh, there's such a unique talent, and he died so young. It, it, you really, I know it's country music, a lot of people turn their nose up, but if you stop and listen to his lyrics, of his songs that he recorded 
when he was 19, 20, and 21 years old. It's just amazing the talent that he had. Uh, oh, phenomenal. I, oh. And, and yeah, maybe country, maybe rockability, but, yeah. but you know, you, you look at a song, and I'll, I'll, I'll cite one for you here that fits your example. So, yeah, you know, I'm a next era of 70s rocker guy. And uh, uh, George Thorogood and the Destroyers mm -hmm. uh, redid a Hank Williams song, Moving On Over. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, and I, I grew up thinking that was a George Girl Thorogood song. <laughs> oh, sure. You know, it was years later yeah. when I realized, oh, my God, Hank Williams wrote that 20 years earlier, uh -huh. 25 years earlier, maybe. So, so yeah, I mean, here, there's a guy who crossed boundaries uh, easily because of his talent level. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It's really sad that he, he had to die so young because th there's a talent that I think would have went on and on and on. But, but it, once again, I tell people, you just got to listen to his music. And can you imagine a 19, 20-year-old in 1950 singing this song, writing these lyrics? Yeah. It was really something. Yeah, and the comparable I have to him, leaving us at, at 30 years old, uh, the great Patsy Cline, mm -hmm. um, another artist that... that perhaps would have uh, um, been right there with Loretta Lynn still being uh, touted around on, at events and uh, uh, stages at the Grand Old Opry and stuff. Oh, there's no doubt. Patty, um, Patsy Klein was had a beautiful voice, and, and she knew how to perform. And, yeah, she, uh, she would have went on and on. That's, a, that's another tragedy we lost early in her career. I'm sure she would have been around for a long time after that. Now, do you, do you have um, uh, much from either of those? I, th I think I remember you um, uh, showing me some stuff from some Hank Williams stuff that you have, um, uh, maybe an unauthenticated autograph or something that yeah. you believe is uh, authentic. Well, actually, uh, I think I bought it here in Highland. A lady said they saw a Hank Williams back in the 50s, early 50s, and she had a 78 MGM record by Hank, and, and he signed it for her. And... Uh, I, I've had it compared, and I showed other people about it, and he did sign a lot of records. He liked to do that, and the way he signed is, is, is he had Hank, and then below it was always Williams. It's just too straight, and it, to me, I think it's real. I just never went ahead to go out and had it really authenticated it, but, uh, yeah. and, and I have most of his music. I do, when he first started his career, he made four songs on a, a label out of New York City called Sterling Records. And none of them were any kind of hits or were never carried on the radio. It wasn't until he moved over to MGM that he started having these hits. So these four records he made on Sterling, they're, they're only on 78, and they're very, very collectible. They bring some good money uh, because they were so small dis distribution of them. And of course, Hank Williams is so collectible. When a lot of artists go back to their early stuff before they became famous. That stuff is really desirable. That's what collectors look for. Yeah, yeah, cool stuff. Yeah, uh, with, with, with Hank. How about Patsy? You got... Um... Uh, I have quite a collection of Patsy Klein music. Uh, she started in the later 50s. Her stuff was quite available. Uh, I have most of all of her 45s. I have a few 78s that she made back in 57. Some of her early stuff was put out in '78s, and then I have several of her albums. And uh, the one thing I've never never been able to do is, is get an autograph. Her autograph is very hard to find, very yeah. very desirable, because I don't think she was a big signer. Yeah, yeah. Cool stuff. Now you, I mentioned Loretta Lynn. Um, and I think Patsy would have been at least as legendary, if not more, than than what Loretta Lynn turned mm -hmm. out to be for country music. Um, and she may she may be in some people's eyes. Um, her voice was that golden. Um, but but Loretta Lynn is one you you have met. Yes, I did. Uh, in in uh, um, right. your circles at, at record conventions mm -hmm. and stuff, right? And I, um, go ahead and tell the fabulous story that that you shared with me on on a, a record you have of a Loretta Lynn. Well, uh, we, my friend and I, put a country western record collector show on in Branson on a Sunday, and Loretta Lynn happened to be appearing down there at that time. So the the night before the record show, we went to see Loretta perform. And after the performance, she stayed around up on the stage and was autographing things. And what I had with me, when she first started her career, she, she recorded 
three songs on a little label out of, of Tennessee called Zero Records. Uh, she only made three records on them, and what she did with them, she carried them around to radio station all over the South and tried to get into the radio station and give the copy to the DJ and, and have them play the record on it. So I happened to have one with me that time, and, and I took it up to her, and I showed it to her, and, and she said, I got to have that record. <laughs> she, I said, I'm sorry, Loretta, you can't have it. And she says, you know, I gave all those away. And she says, my daughters and I tried to find some. We, we had it somewhere, thought we'd find somewhere in a house somewhere, but we can't locate one of those records. And in the meantime, I had, they made what they called jukebox 33 to third, seven inch records that had like two or three songs on each side, and there were jukeboxes that played these 33 and a third miniature albums, you might call them. And uh, Loretta had never seen one. I had one with me. She said, I didn't know they existed. I never saw that before. And uh, so she did <laughs> autograph that for me. She signed the cover of that. And she said, please don't lose that Zero record, whatever you do. So, so, <laughs> so since then, I have all three of her Zero records, which are- Oh, is that right? They're very yeah. collectible, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think, and I could be wrong here, but I think they show that in the uh, uh, coal miner's daughter, the uh, scene early on when her, hu I assume her husband mm -hmm. is uh, the one that had those printed. Probably, uh, uh, yeah. And uh, I think I remember a scene with uh, them handing the records out. And yeah. so, uh -huh. so uh, that, that's a, that's a great story. And uh, um Shame on you for not giving Loretta the copy of her round. <laughs> no, no, that's funny. That's funny. All right, so I'm going to transition a little bit here. And, and the, the era changes from the 60s to, to the 70s. And, and your generation of music is uh, wilting on the vine a little bit as far as uh, the listening generation goes and... and and such. I mean, they they still have a place on the radio dial. The they're specialized stations now, in, in the seventies, and and it's uh, uh, taken on the whole album oriented rock, and it's uh, really forcing the phase out of forty fives. Mm -hmm. Summarized right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the FM stations took over, and all of the earlier music went down to the AM stations, and they, they played a lot of the oldies on the AM stations. But record companies or, or radio stations couldn't get used to the idea of singles off an album. And so they would demand um, these groups to pick a single to be released. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and for a while there, they still had to, to release 45s and call it a single off this album and such. Right. Uh, right. And so... so this is where my curiosity from you, knowing you're you're not a super big fan of of, of the the rock era um, that followed um, the the fifties and and sixties there. So just curious if you have some of the popular ones in your collection because they did chart, um, and, and uh, I I just don't know from a, a an ignorance perspective if they charted with forty fives, which is what your 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 target is. So I'm gonna I'm throw out a couple of them. It's sticking to the same thing, people that died young. Uh, Janis Joplin and uh, uh, Jimi Hendrix. Okay. Um, you have them? <clears throat> yeah, I do have singles by them. Uh, Janis Joplin is, is very collectible. Jimi Hendrix stuff is very desirable. I, but it, it, most of this stuff they look for is on the, on the LP format. Uh, but he did have three or four singles that did short on the top one. Watchtower probably being oh, one of them. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then uh, uh, Bobby McGee for Janis Joplin. Right, uh, yeah. Obviously, it would be the the big one. So, so okay, okay. So far, you're doing good for my era. All right, yeah. You answer yes to the first two. Um, I'm going to get a little more difficult here with uh, Jim Morrison and the Doors. Um, they they did they did chart quite a bit in the '60s. I, again, I don't know if it's in the '45s category or not. Um, and um, um, Ronnie Van Zant of uh, Leonard Skinner with uh, and now you're getting more into the the mid '70s. Right. Uh, again, both bands uh, charted in the Billboard hundred quite a bit. Um, did they make Jim Ronnet record collectors? Oh sure, eyes? especially the Doors. They had a lot of big forty-five singles. Uh, a couple of them made number one even. So their their forty fives are very available and they're out there. Same with Leonard Skinner. Most of their hits 
that you heard on the radio charted into the top 100 yeah. or on actually up probably up into the top 20 uh, but that's the stuff yeah. that I do have all those too so. okay okay so you so you don't dismiss them just because they're not uh, oh, uh, no. somewhat somewhat if, of your favorite if they music. made that billboard 100 and I don't care what year <laughs> on a 45 format I wanted it you know? all right now now the the next two um I, I list the drummers but they're from iconic bands that were never the same after they passed away. And so you, you probably figure it out pretty easy. One band, I, I think, did a, an amazing transformation when I talk about Keith Moon and The, the Who. And, and, and The Who, if you go all the way back to the, the mid, even early 60s with my generation um, uh, being their, their big hit in, the, in that initial time frame of their existence, that fit more the music of that era of the the, the pop kind of a sound that was going on with the British invasion. Yeah, sure. And, and I think that band transformed themselves as the industry did, and they turned into these rock gods in the seventies and, and and such. So, do you have the Who in your collection? Oh, I sh- surely have. Yeah, oh yeah. yes, definitely have the Who in there. Yeah, the Who and the Rolling Stones were. Really great bands. I, I do appreciate their music, even from the seventies and eighties, and but uh, uh, because they were just down to earth rock and roll bands, and I, I do like both those, uh, the Who and the Rolling Stones. And, uh, and that, well, that's great. Uh, and uh, I just saw the Stones a few months ago when they were here in St. Louis, yeah. and uh, uh, unbelievable um, the energy they still have and and the sound they put out. As far as yeah. record collecting go, the Stones have a super rare record. The first record that they released in the States was called Stoned. It was on the London label, and it didn't sell at all. And it's up into four figures now, if, if, if you ever see one. I've never had one, never had a chance to buy one. But uh, I've seen pictures of them in books and people talking about it, but I've never seen it. So it's a single? or yeah, it's a single 45. Yeah, called Stoned. Stoned is the name of it. All right, I've got a brother who's retired that loves missions like this. There you go. So, so I'll put him on it for you and see <laughs> see what he can dig up. <laughs> and he's a big Stones fan too, so so he he might just take me up on that. And and the other one I have in in, in this is uh, John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, and that's a group that owned the seventies in my eyes, right? And they sold right. more albums than anybody in the seventies, and and so, uh, but. They didn't chart a whole lot when it comes to singles, no, they but they didn't. had a few. Oh yeah, um, yeah. that, that did, did make it as a single, but they, you know they dominate with albums. Sure, um, but but um, you have LZ singles in your collection. Oh sure, there you I go. I have several Led Zeppelin singles. That they Folks, he has aced the test for the seventies okay. rock era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so you do um, have the few that collected, or, or at least some of them. Um, that charted in the 70s. Yeah, uh, uh, speaking of 70s rock and roll and LPs as compared to the 45s from my generation, our generation, the, the music was like two minutes and maybe 15 seconds long, and that's all it was. And so if you didn't like a record, it'd be over two minutes and 15 seconds. But, but once you get into the album concept, this is where I don't particularly like them. A lot of times there's too much filler in an album. Or they'll just carry out the instrumental break in the middle of a song and keep repeating it and repeating it and repeating it just to fill out the album, I think. And uh, and you see that in, in some of their concerts. You get the crowd all wound up and they just keep playing the same instrumental part over and, and the kids are screaming and hollering. So, but that's not my generation, so that's, that's why I don't... Well, my my wife would totally agree with you there, and I'm the opposite. I love <laughs> I love the eight minute jam sessions yeah. at, at a live concert. Okay. Uh, I, I, to me, that I get lost in it. And okay. To me, it's the instrumentalist uh, showcasing the the side guys besides the lead singer in the group. And some I, I get what you're saying, and that and it certainly does come across as filler to 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 me at times even. Uh, but but uh, there there's a a different level of appreciation, and it's probably a generational thing. But it's thing. also, you got a lot to look at it as how things progressed in the, in the music uh, 
amplification. When you went to a rock concert, I mean, they could fill up an auditorium or a, a baseball stadium. They had all these super big amplifiers. And it really, I can understand that that music just would beat your ears in when you started hearing it, and you could get right into the music. If you go back once again to Elvis, Elvis was on stage with one electric guitar, which was Scotty Moore, plugged into a little amplifier sitting on the stage. Elvis had a, a microphone that he sang into, and he strummed on an uh, acoustic guitar. It wasn't electric. And then you had Bill Black slapping an acoustic bass. And that was a concert. And That's it had all to, it was. And it had to out... And had to be louder than the screaming fans. Which for, it never for, was. Right, never right. And, and that's proven evident in, yeah. in all the footage that you see. Right. And it, uh, uh, I always wondered uh, if you could ever actually hear a song. That, that's what... Uh, uh, had, had. Yeah, back then you just, you, you could hardly hear it. But it, it, you got to compare, it was so simple back then. Right, in the 50s, right. Just those four people and one electric piece on the stage... And you come back to these big rock concerts. They got walls and walls and walls of amplification, and every instrument is amplified, and it goes through all this. Where back then everybody played through one microphone mostly. Yeah, that's yeah. what my band did. We had, we had one microphone and a little amplifier, and we played our instruments and sang in it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough, and and so so yeah, I it's a uh, I'm glad you brought up that transition from the 45s into songs. I I actually had that as a note when I was going to mention Leonard Skinner. There is is um, um, radio station struggled with that concept of uh, not having the single release for that reason. They're they're formatted on two to three minute songs. Right. Or, or three to four minutes was considered a long one, and <laughs> these albums start coming out, and you know they give them Freebird for a single, and you know it's a six minute thirty second song, and, they, and the station managers are like, "We got commercials to get in here, <laughs> we can't be playing that." And so, yeah. so that that transition took a while to to get accepted and 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 such, and so, so yeah, then that, that's a, a funny that you mentioned that uh, to me because I. I I saw that. I experienced that myself, in, in just in the stations I listened to, uh -huh. um, um, transitioning here in the St. Louis area. Yeah, uh, cool stuff. So that's my exercise for the night: is uh, uh, comparing some of those artists that, that left us too early, mm -hmm. and uh, how much more did, did could we have had from some of them? Yeah, I, out of all these, I I think Patsy Klein's probably the one we we left. Uh, that, that left too soon before all her talent was realized, in my opinion. And you can pick almost any of these uh, these artists we talked about. Oh, sure. Uh, I, I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And fall there. Um, what else? Um, uh, tickling your fancy in the record collection um, industry here. I know you had a visit from uh, a guy you, you've struck a friendship up uh, from Holland, was it? Or Sweden. Sweden. Mm -hmm. Sweden. And uh, sorry, I missed a chance to, to, to get over there when he, he visited a couple weeks ago. But but uh, any any news, uh, any any turnips from, from that visit? Well, uh, in fact, he was at my house this morning again. <laughs> he came over to the States March 3rd. And what he does... He travels all around the country, sets up a route. If there's record shows someplace, he'll make sure he can hit that on a weekend. And then he makes contacts with collectors like myself. And he always makes sure he stops by and sees me and we, we deal together. But uh, rock and roll music from the 50s, 60s, into the early 70s is very collectible and popular in Europe, all over Europe. Uh, I, I have collectors from Germany and England and and Sweden come to my house off and on all through the year. And uh, they come and collect all this rock and roll and take it back over there. And everybody over there loves the, the American rock and roll. And even with the language barriers, and, and it don't seem to make any difference. And it's, it's American rock and roll is very popular in Europe and very collectible. It's still from that era and stuff. Yes. From uh, 50s, 60s, early yeah. 70s and and such. So, so what what what'd you have to part with uh, this morning? <laughs> well, if I parted with something, it was usually a duplicate. But I, I did have a couple of I don't know, people I'm aware of a, what they call a 45 extended play record. 
It was a 45 that generally had two songs on each side, and it came in a, a hard cardboard cover, just like the LP cover, but it was a miniature of the LP. A lot of times, because of that, back in those days, an LP might cost you three bucks or four bucks, and teenagers couldn't afford that. So they put a miniature album out called it a 45 Extended Play, which had two songs on each side or four songs that came off the album. And uh, those are very collectible. They did not sell that well, but those are very desirable, very collectible. And I, and I deal, uh, deal with my friend this morning, a couple of Buddy Holly Extended Play 45s. Look so, out, look yeah. out. All right, all right. Uh, and, and they reciprocate with anything? They bring stuff that they would want to try and trade? Um, when when they come over to the states and, and stuff, or is it stick, strictly a collection? Stick, they strictly is collectible. They very seldom ever bring anything, unless I maybe ask for something. I said, well, if you can find a Swedish version of a certain song or record, uh, I'd like to have it for my collection or something. He might do that, but they come over here to buy, and uh, what he was associated with. There's a label over in Sweden called Classic Records, and they would collect this obscure music from the 50s and 60s that never charted. You never heard of them. And they'd put out CDs over there in Europe on these uh, uncharted records. They were, what well, they call them teen songs. It's about going steady, the prom, uh, a girl's name, or driving your car around, or hot rod songs, anything to do with teenage life. That's the big thing in Sweden, what this classical records puts out and they put out CDs and all these obscure recordings from America and they do very well with them over there. What's the label? It's called Classic Records. Classic out Records. Sweden, out, out of Sweden. And can you find some of them on, online to, to uh, yeah, play? Yes, to, they can. Well, they're CDs only now. Yeah. They'll put out a CD with like 25 songs on it because once again, the songs are only a couple minutes long. Right. So they can right. put a lot of songs in one CD, but they are available online, yeah. That was always a challenge for me. On the uh, Beach Boys were good for that. They, they'd have an album that had nine songs on one side and eight on the other. And trying to drop that record to song number five on, on an album was always a challenge for me. Many a scratches as a result. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, well, Jim, it's been fun again. Um, the, this hour goes by uh, extremely fast, and so. So, uh, it's always uh, fun talking about something you love. So I, well, that passion shines through. That was uh, some of the uh, other feedback I got on our last episode, and I, I'm certain the people will, will see the same thing here. Uh, any any final thoughts before before we uh, uh, sign off tonight? And uh, we'll do it again sometime, uh, pal. I, 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 music never ends as a subject. <laughs> uh, you know. No, once again, I just. I, in my retirement now, I just look forward to going junking. Get up in the morning, I, I drive, get off the interstates and drive down the little towns, go to the thrift stores, the secondhand stores, the Goodwill stores, and uh, looking for little golden nuggets here and there. They turn up once in a while, but uh, that that's just the fun part of the hobby, is, is the hunt. I really love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we visit junkets like that, and now I got a new... A new target, maybe to, to help you out there and look for, for look for that hidden elusive nugget, and uh, um, it could be fun for me uh, <laughs> as well. So so thanks again. Uh, I appreciate you spending a, a few minutes to kick it around some more. And uh, uh, like I said, start thinking about oh, I wish I would have talked about this. And uh, um, you know, uh, we'll 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 get together again and, well, I'm and sure there'll be something to come to my mind it's, yeah. it's like everybody says you got a question and you don't know it till you walk out the door yeah. no. <laughs> yes I did yeah yeah um, and so so I um, may visit again over to the, the what I refer to as the museum <laughs> uh, I, I've got a couple friends that, that have some interest so I may may bug you a little bit on that uh, oh, sure anytime, you got a kick anytime. out of it I don't know if we explained last time but you also have a Almost a, a miniature recreation of a diner setting over there, right? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, in, in your basement. And uh, describe that a little bit for, for the listeners. Well, I got, they were opening up a diner here in Highland, and I happened to be out there. They wanted me to decorate, help decorate the inside with some 50s, 60s 
like sheet music and pictures and, and some records hang on the wall and things like that. Is that Buzzies again? Uh, yeah, that's what it was. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, no, this is where the 501 Blues is. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a, a diner for maybe a year and a half I or so. I remember that. I yeah. remember. And uh, at the time I was out there, they had just ordered these new booths to put into place. And I said, oh, my, I want them for my basement. So they went ahead and ordered me an extra set for myself. And then, and then I have two jukeboxes in my basement. One's for 45s and one plays 78s. And I got that all set up on one side of the room. With the with the um, required black and white checkered floor. Oh yes, I do have that. <laughs> right. So, I do have that in one room. <laughs> so, so, so you can uh, uh, really go back in time in, in mm -hmm. the basement over there and uh, play some of this fabulous music we've been talking about, and uh, uh, we uh, appreciate you keeping it alive like that. I know uh, I do, and I, I listen to it. Uh, uh, quite a bit and so so it's a fun a fun hobby you have there and uh, appreciate you sharing it with us yeah i enjoy talking about it Dench. thank you all right uh, that's uh jim ronnett uh record uh memory collector not record collector memory collector like of, that, uh, of, uh, of uh our memories of the the great eras of uh music over the years and uh, we've got a, an episode lined up for the kickoff of major league baseball um uh, make sure you look for that in a couple weeks um, after this, uh, Sean Sheridan, uh, 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 a nephew of mine, but um, perhaps the most passionate baseball fan uh, uh, of his generation, uh, will, will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with me on my generation uh, from when I was that passionate back in, in, in the day. And uh, we're going to do some comparing generational notes and get some thoughts on the upcoming season and see if there's still an interest in baseball um, and uh, um, the, the world out there. And I'm sure there is, especially in Highland, where we've got two, two kids from Highland High School uh, taking the rubber on the mound, um, uh, Jake Odorizzi and uh, Jeff Hartlib. So, so um, uh, both um, uh, doing uh, uh, well at the major league level. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about them and, and the upcoming baseball season. For, look for our, our baseball preview in a couple of weeks on From the Bench with Dench. Jim Ronnett, thanks again, uh, friend, for, for filling this hour with me. It's been fun, and uh, we'll do it again. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, Dench. All right. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Denny Dench Rittenhouse. Join us again for another edition of From the Bench with Dench.